On September 2nd, 1808, Adoniram Judson proudly delivered the valedictorian address at Brown College in Providence. Shortly thereafter, he spent a couple of weeks at home during which he revealed to his father, who was a congregational minister, and his mother and his sister that he no longer held the faith that they had taught him while growing up, but that while at Brown, he had become a deist. That was difficult news, and that he was no longer going to pursue ministry, but that he was going to go now to New York City to become a playwright. And so after several uncomfortable days, he left for New York City. He got to the city full of ambition, full of hope, full of optimism, only to discover that New York City, as it still is today, was a hard place to make a living, running around with a a group of uh, roaming um, actors, he decided one night in despair to leave the city, only weeks after he had arrived. And on his way back, he um, stays at an inn in a rural village in Connecticut, goes into the innkeeper and says, I need a room. And the innkeeper says, there's only one room left, and it's next door to a a young man who's deeply ill and probably dying. And I'm afraid that that would bother you if I were to give you the room. And he says, well, I I need the sleep, so I'm going to take the room. So he takes the room. Laying on his bed, he hears the groans, quiet groans, and discomforts of this young man who's one partition over from him in the room. He hears the footsteps going in and out and the murmur of those who are helping And he begins to think about death, and he thinks about his own death and the the departure from his faith and his deism and wondering whether this man that's next to him is ready to die, wondering whether he is ready to die. But he shakes off those thoughts and gets to sleep. The next morning he wakes up and he heads down to pay the innkeeper. And he asks the innkeeper, who's looking rather grim, how is that young man doing? And the innkeeper says, he's dead. And Adoniram says, do you know who he was? And the response that the innkeeper gives changes everything in this young man's life. He was only 20 years old at the time. He says it was a young man from a college in Providence named Eames, James Eames. At that moment, Judson could hardly remember the next few hours. His world was spinning James Eames was his closest friend from Brown, the one who had led him to depart from his Christian faith and embrace the deism that he was now struggling with on his bed the night before. And suddenly that death that had only been a mere annoyance in his life for the previous 12 hours had become everything to him because it was so deeply personal and he was involved now. This was his brother, his friend, the one that he had frolicked around Uh, the the town of Providence with and discussed deep thoughts late into the night. And God used the death of this friend in the room next door to, to change Adoniram's path for the rest of his life such that he became the first American missionary to go overseas to spend his life in Burma, translating the scriptures into Burmese. We're considering a death tonight. The question is this, who is in the other room dying? Who is on the cross dying? And what does he have to do with you? If, if we don't know this, we'll be like Adoniram before he learned the name 
of the man next to him. But when we know this, when we become aware of the answers to these questions, it begins to literally change our lives, what we're here meditating upon tonight together. Through the lens of John's gospel, it is the burden of this gospel to declare to you and to me who this is who hangs on the cross. There is that interesting moment when the Jews tell Pilate, this man has made himself to be the Son of God. Pilate goes back to Jesus in the trial and he says, where are you from? That's the question that's the burden of the entire gospel. So when John begins to write these words, he speaks, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. Right from the outset, the author, John, lets us know that this is no ordinary man, and that he has no ordinary origin. And throughout the narrative of the gospel, the question of the origin of Jesus is the burden that the gospel seeks to answer, that the characters begin to, rev- to see. And when the disciples come to see Jesus speaking clearly in John 16 about his death and about what he's come to do, they said, oh, now we know who you are. You're speaking to us plainly. We believe that you have come from God. Who's hanging on the cross? Who's being humiliated and shamed and mocked? John's gospel declares to us that it is the Son of God. It is God himself in the person of his Son who hangs there. The one who has come down from above. And the gospel says he's come to accomplish the will of his Father. What is, he says, so Jesus says in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Well, what is the Father's will? What is it that Jesus has come to do? And we've been considering this throughout our Lenten series at Church of the Cross, a will that God has to bring us to life. So Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. That's the will of my Father that I've come to accomplish. I've come to bring life to a people who would rather have darkness and death I've come to my own, but my own didn't receive me. But I've come from above. I've come from the throne room of heaven. That you might have life and have it abundantly. And then the gospel begins to shape the way in which this life will come around this prominent moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. It centers around his death. So in the next verse, after the one that we've had as our title verse for Lent, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus then says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. The Gospel of John is organized around the hour. In John 2, he says, My hour has not yet come when his mother tells him to turn the water into wine. But then in chapter 12, the hour arrives, and Jesus says, Father, what shall I say? Save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. What is the hour? It's the hour of his death. That's why I've come. That's why I'm here. That's why I've traveled all this distance from the heavenly, from the heavenly realm to be with you. I've come to die. So when Peter, at the beginning of the Passion that we read tonight, when Peter takes out his sword and tries to cut off the head of the servant of the high priest, 
Jesus says, put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And we see throughout John's Gospel that Jesus goes forward to this hour boldly, willingly, intentionally to drink this cup. Now, why might it be that this life that God's will is for us as his creatures comes through this death that his son is heading toward? John gives us the two main reasons. The cleansing from, from, our, from the guilt of our sin. That our sin and our wandering, our walking, our wandering astray, our going astray like sheep has made us dirty and filthy. And so in John 13, when Jesus is at the final, the Last Supper with his disciples, and he gets up and he takes off his outer garments and he wraps a towel around his waist to signify what he will do for them the next day at the cross, he begins to wash their feet and he comes to Peter and Peter says, No, Lord! And what does Jesus say? If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. We heard from Isaiah that Jesus bears our iniquities, that the Father has laid upon him the iniquity of us all, that it was the will of the Father to crush him, and that this one, this servant of the Lord, makes many to be accounted righteous. That is, he makes many who were sinful and dirty and filthy to be clean and holy and pure. And so, like the saints are said to have done in Revelation chapter 7, we can take our dirty robes and wash them white in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus' death brings about cleansing. And then John gives us the second main insight about this death and why it's so central, that it brings us liberation from the dominion of sin over our lives. There are no exorcisms in this gospel. Whereas in the synoptic gospels, there are many where Jesus casts out demons. But in John's gospel, no demons are cast out until you get to the hour in chapter 12, when that turning point comes and Jesus comes to the hour and he says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now, as I've come to the hour of my death, now will this this prince of the power of the air, this prince of darkness, this prince who rules over the world as it's turned away from God in rebellion to God, now he will be cast out. How? By me going to the hour for which I have come. And so this death brings cleansing that we desperately need. And this death brings liberation that we desperately need from the dominion and power of sin over our lives. In order to open the door, do you see how that opens the door? For the purposes of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit to be accomplished in humanity, that we might come to life because we needed to be cleansed and we needed to be set free. And what all of this then means is that this cross, this death, this agony, this suffering, this betrayal, this humiliation is not a moment of defeat. It is not an accident. But it is the act, the greatest act of radical love from the Father and the Son toward their creation toward you 
and toward me. And this is John's testimony as well. For God so loved the world, you know this verse, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Or back in that moment in the upper room, just before Jesus takes his garments off and wraps the towel around his waist, John says that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Not by washing their feet, but washing their feet was an enacted sign of what he would do the next day. Of the cleansing, the deep cleansing that they desperately needed that would come from the blood that he would shed on the cross. And then later in that discourse in the upper room, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So consider again the scene. Jesus, naked, exposed, shamed, mocked, humiliated, hanging helplessly, riddled with pain, blood dripping down his face, gasping for air underneath the unbearable weight of his own body. And in between those final gasps, crying out, it is finished! These are the declaration of the greatest love that could ever be known or expressed. The love of the highest order. The work has been done. The will of my Father has been accomplished. Sin has been atoned for. The devil and his dominion have been decisively defeated. Life, abundant life, can finally come and flow to my people that I love. It is finished. So the question is, what do you see? Who do you see when you look at this cross? Who is it that's hanging there? An unfortunate victim? A mistaken prophet? A kind man whose teaching was wonderful and gave us lots of great morals to live by? But who deserves our pity for such a terrible end? Or is the one hanging there the victorious God of love, in flesh, in human skin and bone and blood? The incarnate God, hanging on the cross, gasping, panting, bleeding, and dying, not for himself, not for anything that he had done, but for you and for me, for those that he had brought into being. He is there for your sin. You couldn't wash yourself. He's there for your liberation. You couldn't set yourself free. He's there to bring you abundant life. No matter how hard you try, how far you look, how hard you work, you can never find it. He's there because he loves you deeply. I've been so struck throughout this Lenten season while reading Scripture, and particularly the Old Testament, about God's steadfast love that endures forever. This committed, persistent, radical love that God is so committed to his people that he will not let them go. A love that never ends, a love that never stops, a love that won't quit, a love that gives his people boldness and courage in the face of every opposition. When the enemy is gathered around, you read the Psalms and they're just overflowing with 
awe at this wonderful love, the steadfast love of God. And what I want you to know is that this cross and this moment is the greatest display, the greatest example, the greatest illustration, the greatest act that God's steadfast love has ever and will ever do. Because, as Paul says, even while you and I were still sinners, even while you and I were still spitting in his face, even while you and I were still humiliating him and mocking him and turning from him and embracing sin and enjoying it, even while we were doing all those things, Christ died for us. For you and for me. He went there for us. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So then Paul asks, how will he, the God of the universe, not also graciously give us all things? As you contemplate the cross, this silences your doubts about God's intentions toward you. Does God really love me? Look to the cross. Does God really care about my life? Look to the cross. Does God see what I'm going through? Does he know? Look to the cross. Could God understand my pain and my heartache and my suffering? Look to the cross. Is God good? I mean, I look around the world and all I see is violence and pain and heartache and dashed hopes. Is God good? Look to the cross. Because there he hangs to cleanse us and to free us from our sin to give us the life that we so desperately long for, that we were made for. And this is his intention. Look at how far he has gone to express his love. Look at how far he has gone to accomplish his deep purposes of love for you and for me. And if you think for a moment, this isn't personal, this isn't about me, this this can't be about me, Paul, who called himself the chief of sinners, who knew the depth of his own sin, who knew his own opposition to the will of God, speaks in Galatians 2 of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is so deeply personal. Yes, it's cosmic, but it is so deeply personal. The cross is about you. It has everything to do with you and with me. We can choose to go through life like Adoniram Judson went through that night. Knowing about this death on the cross, affected in some way at the tragedy of this beautiful story, at the pain of an innocent man dying, but not deeply moved, not radically altered. But when we see through the lens of God's Scriptures of God's own words about himself and about this event, when we see and when we learn that this was God, this was no man alone, this was God and man united in one person in Jesus, hanging on the cross because he loved you and me so deeply. Even though it was our sin that led him there, because he wanted to give us life so fully and abundantly, that this was for us, then it's impossible to contemplate this great act without being deeply moved and without having the trajectory of our life forever changed and without coming to a place of deep and firm and assured assured 
faith that God's purposes for us are good, that God's love for us is true, that God should never be doubted, even through the darkest of days, in the deepest shadows of death that we walk through. Look to the cross, and remember as you do so, that this has everything to do with you. And that the abundant life that we are so privileged to taste and to see and to know and to experience comes about only through the pathway of this horrifying and humiliating death that was God's greatest act of love and accomplishment of his wonderful purpose. It is finished. Amen.